Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Venkat, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, there's a lot we can talk about. I'm familiar with your work. I like the topic in your new book, and I think it's quite relevant today. But before we start, I think it would be a good idea for the listeners to get a sense of your background, how you ended up specializing in this topic. Yeah, sure. Um, and thanks again for having me. So I've been uh, with the firm, with McKinsey & Company, for 20-plus years. Uh, over the last two decades, I've been with the firm. Uh, I've been focused on working primarily in the area of uh, tech, media, and telecom, a bit on consumer and a bit on industrial tech as well. Yes. Um, my work uh, spanned across um, advising and driving impact, um, working with executives and boards, uh, and also investors for that matter, on a variety of topics. And I'll get yes. to how I got into the ecosystem uh, economy and, and, and how the whole thing transpired. Um, I've, I've had a keen interest in future of technology, uh, especially at the intersection of different sectors of the economy. Uh, and at that interest uh, really drove me to look into um, opportunities for us, for our clients, for our investor clients, and for industrial clients and other, other clients that we serve at the intersection of new technologies and emerging business models. Um, that interest drove me to really deep dive into just taking a, a look at how the economy is evolving, um, especially driven by yeah. some of the developments in technology and consumer preferences. Uh, and then that you know, really led me to do a lot more digging into various aspects of you know, what could be coming, um, uh, coming ahead of us. Yes. And then, and then developing a point of view on that. And that's kind of how uh, this book culminated itself. And then uh, you know, prior to McKinsey, um, I was at uh, 3M and GE. And at McKinsey, I've held different positions. Uh, I, would, I ran our, uh, I currently I run our uh, tech uh, media and telecom, sorry, tech and telecom practice. And I also was one of the co-founders of our IoT practice a few years back. And then before that, I've led several initiatives and several leadership roles uh, within the uh, digital, digital, digital transformation aspects of uh, uh, our firm. So it sounds as if that you were serving these companies in media and so on over many years, and you were trying to find out why some of them were performing better than others, which is how you came up with this concept of an ecosystem company. Is that a good way to think about it? That and also I took a pretty broad and also comprehensive view, look at uh, where and how value is getting created in the economy and yes. how that value is getting captured or uh, getting accrued um, to different, different constituents within the economy. So let's start for the listener who may not use the same terminology McKinsey uses or may not have a consulting background. Let's start by defining what is an ecosystem economy. Yeah, so ecosystem economy is an economy where you have a set of ecosystem-oriented businesses. When we say ecosystem-oriented businesses, what do we mean by that is 
community of interconnected. They could be digital, they could be physical businesses that collaborate with each other by sharing assets, sharing information, sharing resources um, to create value beyond what they would have been able to do on their own individually. And the result is they're able to, with this ecosystem business concept, they're able to serve their customers better and create better value for their customers. And in doing so, they're, they're creating or they're capturing some of that value. They're, they're taking some of that surplus and accruing to themselves. And then they're not just sharing the pie that exists, but expanding the, you know, so to speak, the business pie. So that's our definition of, you know, broader ecosystem economy, ecosystem oriented businesses, if you will. So I'm going to ask a question that I think some listeners would be thinking about. In your book, The Ecosystem Economy, How to Lead in the New Age of Sectors Without Borders, which I thought was a very well-written book, by the way, you used Amazon and several companies as an example. And you talked about how Amazon moved into retail, streaming, video, games, cloud computing, physical supermarkets, and many other areas. So this is the question that I think people would be thinking about. So back in the day when I used to be a consulting partner, 90s, and then senior partner, early 2000s, a lot of companies, we'll take banks as an example, created the supermarket model whereby they tried to branch out from retail banking into investment banking, into insurance, into a whole host of areas. And they got hit with a conglomerate discount. So what makes Amazon and the tech companies able to expand into so many areas and create value when for a long time companies that did that destroyed value? What makes these companies different? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. We, we wrestled with this question as we were embarking on writing, a, writing the book. Um, so if you step back and think about conglomerates versus ecosystem-oriented businesses, there are a couple of very interesting differences. Mm -hmm. The first and foremost, perhaps the fundamental difference is conglomerates typically, not always, but typically go after diversification of their own business portfolio. Yes. That's their main aim. And if you look at a lot of the conglomerates, you know, you're going back, you know, maybe even 100, 150 years back, a lot of the conglomerates are, okay, I'm in business in sector X, I'm going to go to sector Y because yeah. that is, that's that way I can diversify my portfolio, right? Versus if you look closely look at the ecosystem-oriented businesses, they tend not to do that. They tend to follow what customer need, what customer common thread can I uh, rely on or can I use to continue to offer better and more services for those customers? So in Amazon's case, you know, they got in, they, they started with books, they expanded books to electronics and electronics to other, other aspects of consumer goods. And so they kind of expanded to apparel. So that's the way they have a common thread of, okay, when, when consumers shop, you know, I'm selling them books, but what else can I sell them with the same convenience as, you know, I'm selling books to them. That's, a, yes. that's really following what we call consumer need and fulfilling consumer needs and getting to their pain points. And also we would call that following the consumer or customer journey more so than going after diversification aspects of it. So that's a, that, those, are the, those are a few differences between a conglomerate and um, and an ecosystem business. Uh, let me highlight maybe one or two others. The other, sure. other big difference is in, in ecosystem-oriented businesses, you have a common platform. In Amazon's case, they have a, you know, a, a web presence, a web platform that others can come in and either buy or, 
or host and sell and things like that. They have a common platform. In conglomerates, a lot of the conglomerates you see, they don't have a common platform. Again, yes. they're, that's because they're not built around customers. They're built around driving, um, you know, driving diversification. And then the other difference I would, I would highlight is typically in, in ecosystem-oriented businesses, you tend to drive expansion of the pie, meaning so um, if you take in any of the ecosystem-oriented businesses that we've, we've highlighted in the book, um, by combining resources, sharing information, you're actually expanding the market that you're serving and you're serving them better. And then whatever value you're creating to the customers, you're capturing some of that back and you're sharing some of that with the ecosystem partners and some you're keeping because you're one of the instigators or, or the anchors of the ecosystem, right? On the other hand, conglomerates, you don't have, in many cases, expansion of the pie as one of the key outcomes or one of the key focus areas of you know, what conglomerates did in, in historically. I like that. That's a very articulate explanation of the differences. So I'm going to paraphrase this back for the listeners, right? I remember many years ago working with a very large beer company, and they went through a process of diversification whereby they looked at the excess cash they had on hand. And rather than thinking about what their customers needed, they simply said, well, we have all this cash, so we're going to buy a chain of casinos. We're going to buy a cement company. So that's an example where you're saying they're diversifying to put their cash somewhere, but it doesn't benefit the consumer. It's not being led by the consumer. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Uh, that's a perfectly uh, appropriate way to think about it, yeah. And coming back to that, because the guys who ran the beer side of the business had no capabilities to run the cement side in the business, there was no combination of competencies. There was no economies of scales. There was no common platforms. They ended up destroying value because there were no synergies. Is that another difference that you're highlighting? Yes, you know, that's, a, that's definitely another difference. You know, the, it's interesting. If you look at some of the conglomerates, even in the past three or four decades, yeah. you realize that they're either saying that I have a bunch of this cash, I'm going to invest this cash uh, on behalf of my shareholders, or they're saying, because I'm in these diversified businesses, I can train my managers and executives and they can, I can move them around and they can run better businesses. Those two models, by the way, the first model, I went to University of Chicago, so and we've always been taught that you know, the, 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 the teachings of University of Chicago is that uh, that the investors themselves can do a much better job of diversification than corporations yeah. can do on their behalf. So I, I believe in that. So if you, if you subscribe to that, that obviously the, the, the first you know, rationale is a fallacy. The second rationale for taking different executives and moving around, you know, moving them around in different businesses and gaining, having them gain experiences, I don't know, that may have been true decades and decades ago yes. with this day and age and the amount of uh, Ability and amount of technology and the other ways in which that you could train, you know, train and have your executives gain experience. I think the second reason, second one of the second rationale is also somewhat, somewhat of a becoming somewhat of a fallacy as well. Yes, it seems to me we're going to use Amazon as an example because it's a pretty good example. But you're welcome to introduce others. But it seems that what Amazon is doing and the examples you've highlighted very well is that they go where customers want them to go. So they're serving the same customers different needs, whereby conglomerates tend to move into new sectors and find new customers, but they're different customers. Which now brings me to the next point. 
What is it about tech companies that make them so successful at this? Because the examples you've provided are predominantly tech companies. Is there a reason for that? Well, I, the, the, by, either by the fact that they needed to develop this ecosystem to survive or by sheer just luck, and in, in you can kind of have your own judgment on that. Yes. Um, they were the pioneers in developing this ecosystem. You know, back in the day, um, you know, when there was a PC versus, you know, um, Mac a fight yeah. or, or competition, I should say, right? And both, both sides went on, went on to develop these developer ecosystems. They attracted, they have this, they have this computer uh, product, uh, but they needed, you know, both users and they also needed a bunch of, you know, developers to develop applications. So, uh, and then you can kind of take examples like that in, in the tech industry, whether it's hardware, the software, or other aspects of the tech industry. Um, by just for you know survival, uh, they needed to develop this ecosystem-oriented mindset. They needed to rely on others, yes. uh, and that that really gave them a bit of a head start compared to the other sectors of the economy. Right? And and by, by the way, the one other very interesting thing that happened was. Because the tech companies took the um, pioneering role in establishing this modern day uh, ecosystem, they also, with those ecosystems, set up, uh, set, set up, not set up, sorry, set expectations for consumers. And I'll give you an example. When you are, take like, you know, five or you know, 10 years ago, right? When you're at home doing all your business on Amazon, where it's very easy, you can go buy, you know, anything you want to buy um, you know, from different aspects, there are different aspects of what you want to consume. Uh, and it was so easy, right? You just go uh, online, yes. you, you, double, you do one or two clicks and you're buying. And you go to work and let's say you happen to be in the procurement department of a corporation, right? And the, the same expectations you have on how you're buying as a consumer, they don't translate to uh, the, the, the corporate or the, the, the work world. Because you know you don't you didn't have back then you didn't have all the technology pieces and everything else in, in uh, required in place. Now that's a good example of how these tech companies that are consumer oriented are setting expectations on what to expect from a service and you know delivery standpoint. So I think that 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 really shift happened in the last half decade or so, and then it, it, the shift has continued to happen. So if I step back and kind of synthesize this, right? The tech companies either by your need to survive or just for the, the way that they throw technology uh, or the pioneers in this, uh, in, in developing and establishing ecosystems. But they also at the same time are the pioneers in setting the customer expectations on what customers um, could expect, not only in their personal life and their professional life as well. And I think those two things together drove tremendous amount of uh, uh, the the evolution or revolution, how you want to see it, uh, in, in the, the ecosystem orientation or ecosystem oriented businesses. That makes a lot of sense. So so let's get back to the role the customer plays in leading the companies into these new areas. So I'm obviously like you, a customer and a user of Amazon, Google, Apple, and so on. At no point has Apple or Google ever asked me what I needed. So how do these companies decide where they will go? What's the criteria and decision-making process to say that this is where we're going to expand because our customers are 
Are they telling them to go there? How do they make that prioritization? How do they know? So um, it's a very, very interesting and very important question. Um, it, it's hard for me to speculate um, sure. how they did it, uh, but I could tell you some of this is probably just a you know a luck here luck yeah. that you know they happen to be in an area where um, they made a couple of moves that in you know, building ecosystem-oriented businesses and they kind of took a life of their own and they developed into something really bigger and better for both sides for uh, the ecosystem-oriented business and also for consumers as well. Um, so that, that's kind of one aspect of it, where you know they happen to be in the right right time at the right place, and they drove drove that. But there's the other aspect. I would argue that uh, they actually are quite good at, and then they're doing it in a very um, perhaps you know thoughtful way. That is, if you if you read you know any of the annual reports, if you read any of the um, public domain information on some of these ecosystem-oriented businesses or oriented companies, one thing you always are stuck with is um, the fact that they're highly, highly customer focused. Mm-hmm. They have a maniacal focus on customers. So with that focus, they're not only figuring out or they're not only focused on um, really delivering what they're supposed to deliver with the current service they're offering, but they're also continuously finding ways in which they could expand their services to their customers and in, in, in a true interest of adding more and more value, whether it's convenient, whether it's better price, whether it's better delivery, what have you. And I think that, that, that fundamental focus on how do I create more and more value for my customers, so whether it's, you know, wowing with, you know, with, yes. their, with their product or with a better service and, and so on and so forth, right? I think that's what really drove them to um, develop these very compelling, very differentiated ecosystems in my view. I like that. And just to you know, paraphrase it for the listeners, what you're saying is that they pick an area to go into. Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's, they have a process. But it's not so much the area they pick. Once they go in, they're constantly iterating and adjusting and learning and tweaking and trying to improve things to create value which is why they succeed. And sometimes when they don't succeed, is it fair to say they also then quickly pull back and redeploy resources? Yes, yes. And there, there are a bunch of examples of, you know, companies that didn't succeed and they failed fast or, you know, sometimes, you know, painfully slow. And then they, 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 they kind of abandoned that and moved on. So if you're expanding into all these different areas, to some degree, they must have people they are collaborating with, companies they are partnering with, and so on. Is collaboration a big part of the rules for success in an ecosystem economy? Uh, I think the collaboration is a very big part. And, and along with the collaboration, sometimes this is explicitly um, discussed and agreed upon, and sometimes it is implicit. That is, what role each of these players are going to play in that ecosystem-oriented business or ecosystem economy. Yes. Um, here's what I mean by, by that. Um, in some cases, uh, if you have a platform like Amazon does or others um, do, you could be the anchor for the platform and you try and bring as many players to participate on that platform as a participant, right? And then you have to have a model in which, you know, it's economical, you're, you're sharing the value and you're making it equitable for everyone, right? In the other cases, you may not have the platform. You may be a a uh, very active participant in the ecosystem. 
um, to make the, to enhance the ecosystem and make the ecosystem valuable for everyone involved. And then you, by doing so, you're also uh, creating value and you're sharing some of that value. So I think collaboration is very important. Along with the collaboration comes with a, with a clear-eyed view of what role are you going to play? Am yes. I going to be the anchor that maintain the platform and drive the platform, you know, and continue to improve the platform? Or am I a very active or, or a different kind of a participant um, that on, on somebody else's platform? I like that. So I'm going to play out a scenario here and tell me if my thinking is correct, okay? Let's assume I run a mining company and I mine in some really difficult parts of the world and I have a series of mines across I'm not going to name any countries. I don't know who's listening here. Let's say it's a difficult part of the world. There's not a lot of security. There's not a lot of infrastructure and so on. And the companies that are picking up my ore from the port, because of where I'm located, they cannot get the insurance they need to get their ships in and out. So I'm thinking about my customers and I'm thinking, okay, this is a customer need. Maybe I need to set up a business that sets up insurance for ships bring in and removing material from my mines. And I'm following what my customers are asking me to do. Now, this begs the question, what business am I in if I start following what my customers need? Because traditionally a mining company would say, hey, we would never get into insurance. But in this situation, our customers are saying we need it, it's profitable, it makes sense. So my question to you is that when companies follow the ecosystem model, doesn't it blur the boundaries of what businesses they're in? It does. It definitely blurs. That's why, you know, the, we, the, the subtitle for our book is the uh, sectors without borders. Or so, you know, as, they, as the borders of the sectors uh, that are blurring and more and more of these opportunities are becoming uh, very attractive. In that mining example that you just cited, um, you could, as a mining company, get into the insurance business, you can also say, listen, I need an ecosystem where I have the shippers, I have the yes. uh, insurance players, I have the other play, uh, the, uh, the service players that can you know, service the ships and the trucks, et cetera. Why, my mining is the physical platform I have. Why wouldn't I develop an ecosystem around it? And you can go and in, in partner with and have some insurance companies be your, your ecosystem partner on that eco, you know, on the mining ecosystem, where you have a specialized, perhaps an offer uh, for insuring, you know, the equipment and, and other parts of uh, what you need to be successful in the mine. I think that's the beauty of this and the, um, the, this whole ecosystem setup. And let me just make one other point on this, right? That mining example you gave, because you didn't have insurance, right? Yes. You probably the pie of you know what you could do from a value creation standpoint may be smaller, but if you bring in an ecosystem player or you be a you, you yourself act as the, the insurer, for example, right? So you're expanding the pie because you can you know you can extract and perhaps you can mine more, you can you know ship more, right? So that's a good example of how ecosystems tend to have this pie expanding effect yes. at the end. But that's a good example because what you're saying is that. Once you follow what your customers need in sticking with the example here, they need insurance for their ships. There are different ways to do it. The mining company could do it itself where it doesn't have the experience. It doesn't have the scale. It's probably not going to offer the best experience, or it could go to someone in London, for example, and say, look, we have these ships. They lack insurance. Why don't you work with us 
and you bring in your know-how, transfer it to these companies. And in that situation, more value is created because the partners are experts at what they offer. Is that the right way to think about it? Yes. Yes. And then you're, by the way, you can have that, that, that relationship could be in one, one end of the spectrum a vendor supplier relationship, right? Which is really not an ecosystem relationship. You can just say, hey, I need, you know, insurance for these bunch of ships, you know, come in and give us and, you know, go after that, you go away, right? So to us, that's not as exciting. But on the other hand, you can say, listen, insurance company X or Y or Z, come in, here's the mining ecosystem we're trying to develop. We would like you to be part of this ecosystem. And if you're part of this ecosystem, here is the collective value we can create. And by the way, we actually can have an economic model where we may actually end up sharing the upside that we create together rather than just, you know, giving you a fee. It's a fine yes. model in some cases to have a vendor supply relationship and, you know, have pay them whatever you want to pay, you know, whatever the market is, and then, you know, be done with that. But it's a fine model. In some cases it works fine, but more and more companies are figuring out a way to not just do vendor supplier. In some cases that's very appropriate, but in, in some other cases, this ecosystem mindset, ecosystem orientation of having relationships and having the model not only to uh, have your have the need you know fulfilled, but also have a model to share the value. That's a really key component of uh, you know a successful comp- what makes this, this model successful. It's a good example because oftentimes when I'm going to stick to this example, if a mining company is dealing with shipping companies. And if a shipping company doesn't have insurance, the mining company will say, well, we can't work with you until you figure this out. But what you're saying in an ecosystem model here, the mining company is going to try to create a solution by bringing in specialized partners so that everyone benefits. The pie is bigger right. and it doesn't take yeah. on all of the risk on its own balance sheet, which is yeah. a very big difference from the way conglomerates operate, whereby they take the risk on their balance sheet. That's right. And, and I think the balance sheet risk is one example of it. Yeah. And the conglomerates typically try to own that or have some sort of relationship that where, you know, they're, they're the exclusive, uh, some sort of exclusive rights. Yeah. Um, and, and again, again, the, the model could go, there's a broad spectrum, right? One end you have vendor supply relationship. And then the other end of the spectrum is you have a true ecosystem oriented partnership. You're, you're, you're creating value in, in your sharing the upside. Another good example that I was just thinking about is, you know, apps on the Apple App Store. You know, one model yeah. Apple could have went for is to build every app itself, but it didn't do that. It created a common platform, encouraged people to build on it. And obviously the pie grew much larger than it could have possibly have built by itself if it built every app in-house. That's probably the best example that I could think of in terms of, you know, an example that everybody can relate to. Yes. I remember the conversations that telecoms companies were having in the late 1990s, early 2000, when they were debating how much of their platforms they should open up to the market and how much they should keep in-house. And most of the debates fell on the side of, we need to build these things in-house so we can get the greatest benefit, whereby Apple said, well, you know, we don't have to build it in-house because the universe would be much bigger if you create a system or a sort of a street on which everyone could open a shop and we just took a transaction fee. It's a different way of thinking. In hindsight, it's easy, but what I'm trying to get at is that that's the Apple example, but I'm trying to think of how do we get executives to think about 
how to create a bigger pie with partners in their own industries. How do you encourage executives to think about that? So the, 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 the first and foremost thing we think um, that we need to influence the executives on it. Every corporation, you know, small, medium, or big, you go through some sort of a, a strategic process, a strategic development process, or call yes. it strategy development process, um, in which you know some part of the year, uh, depending on your, you know, the different cycles in the business, you sit down and say, okay, so what's where are we with our strategy? Where are we going? And um, where do we need to be? You know, three years from now, five years from now, et cetera, right? In those conversations, where you primarily focus on the market you're in, what competition do you have, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's the seldom you, you, you really have a discussion around what ecosystem do I belong to or do I want to belong to? Yes. What ecosystem am I in? Am I in an ecosystem? Do I have an ecosystem opportunity to create an ecosystem, either I as the platform provider or the, uh, or the anchor, or do I have an opportunity to go participate in a set of ecosystems that can create a ton of value, right? That thinking, that discussion does not happen as much as we would like it to happen. I think that's the first step you need to take is to figure out in your strategic process, how do you inject ecosystem-oriented thinking on where do you want to play? Where do you want to play? In that, whether it's an existing ecosystem or other or not, an ecosystem you want to build. I think that's the first, first step you would take. So that's an interesting point because you talked about strategy planning sessions with executives and I was recently in one where I was facilitating it. And I can tell you that 90% of the discussion was what business we're in, but I don't think the word ecosystem ever came up. It was seeded into the discussion, but the, the participants didn't want to think of an ecosystem. And I'm not saying they, they did anything wrong. It's possible they didn't see the value of it. So how do we get executives to see the value of thinking about ecosystems? I think there are two ways that I found it. And uh, I found it um, uh, you know, somewhat conducive to have the conversation. One is don't think about in this strategic, discussion, strategic planning discussions. Uh, think about yourself, but think about your customer. Or customers yes and what value can you add to your customers how could you expand the, the amount of value or the level of value that you can add to your customers and if you have that discussion and it's a lot easier for you to go into the going go down the path of okay you know as, as on my own i could add this value gee if i have this kind of partnership this kind of collaboration you know the the amount of value and the level at which I could deliver value for a customer is going to be a lot higher. So I think having that customer back view and a customer as a common thread, customer thread view would be quite, um, quite, an, quite an helpful way to think about it. At least, you know, um, have the, in this discussion, uh, the groups open up to ecosystem thinking. The second is, I often found that if you think about competition and if you really force yourself to think about non-traditional competitors that are truly disruptors that could come in and 
uh, take part of your market or, or, or compete with you, that makes it very challenging for you to compete with them. So take that view, and more often than not, you would get into the ecosystem discussion. And you know, going back to your, your uh, example on Amazon, right? There was lots of discussion about Amazon is getting getting everywhere. They're getting yes. into distribution, they're getting industrial distribution, et cetera, et cetera, right? So just by the fact that you inject Amazon into the conversation, um, into a strategic planning conversation and say, hey, what, what would Amazon do? You know, is there an angle for us to either work with Amazon or that would we compete with Amazon in this case, right? So, and that's just an example of how you could take competitive discussion, not based on who is your competitor that you've been competing with you know, for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. It's more about who is the competitor that could be disruptor in your industry that could you could potentially compete with um, or the threat that you could get you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. I think that's the other way in which that you could, you know, open this conversation up to ecosystem oriented thinking. I like that. That's very well explained. I remember recently speaking to the chief strategy officer of one of those buy now, pay later e-commerce transaction companies. And I, I was asking him, how did he convince all these American retailers to allow an Australian company that's only three years old to allow this Australian company's technology to be integrated onto these American e-commerce sites, allowing customers to buy now and pay in installments. And it's, he said something very similar to what you said, whereby he went to the retailers and told them that their customers want this ability. And unless the companies, these American companies could give it to them, someone else was gonna figure it out and they're gonna lose those customers. And it was a good way of thinking of adding in the competitive environment whereby if customers want something and you can't give it to them, then you have to find a way to partner with someone who can give it to them. Otherwise, you get left exactly. behind. Yes. And several places in the book that we, we highlight the fact that, you know, this is not a, you know, a, a concept that this is not a luxury. This is an essential concept that you need to really get your head around because yes. if you don't, you will be left behind. Exactly. The exact phrase we used it several times in the book that it is it's imperative on you to think through this, but if you don't, there is a very high risk of you being you know, left behind. What's striking to me is the concept seems intuitive. It seems obvious that you need to do this. I wouldn't think you would need to use a lot of examples to convince people or executives that you need this ecosystem model. But I think the challenge for people is always that it's a new way of thinking. It takes time to understand how they can build a business model in a new way of thinking. And of course, you've got to convince so many people in your company that this makes sense. But you did say something which I thought was very insightful is that if you want to have a discussion about ecosystems, don't do it in the strategy planning exercise, because I think those are two separate topics. And one is going to dominate and the other one is going to be sidelined. And then you have a half-baked discussion going forward. That's right. That's why I, I think you need to, you, you can start with a strategic planning discussion, but once you decide that I'm going to be an ecosystem oriented player, um, or I'm going to be a participant in, in a, a larger ecosystem, you really have to think through the you know, step three, step four, and step five of that is, okay, for me to do that, how do I make sure that I'm having, um, I have the right role, meaning I'm not, a, you know, I'm either I'm the anchor or the platform developer or I'm, I'm the participant. 
And then once you decide on that, you, know, you also you may you may also need other other partners that you want to, you need to bring in. You mean you still may need to do a set of partnerships to to really fulfill whatever the customer need that you're trying to fulfill. Yes. And then I I would I would also emphasize that this is this is where most companies fall apart. Um, that is, you just need a different governance model, different performance management model. I would, I would use the word culture. You also would need to foster a set of cultural norms that are conducive for this ecosystem-oriented way of operating your business. And oftentimes, and, you know what I what I observe is that uh, executives and leaders kind of say, "Okay, I'm going to build an ecosystem," and they kind of get very excited about the first couple of steps. And then the last step of building the right foundational elements, they fall apart. And then, you know, the ecosystem are going, those businesses don't go anywhere. Yes, that's well said. I don't know if you've ever done this or you see a need to do this, but when I meet executives amongst many questions, I ask them, one of the things I want to know is have they mapped out their ecosystem? Do they understand what their ecosystem looks like? Do you think that is something companies are doing or should be doing? Interesting, very interesting question. So uh, I did ask that question, by the way, many times. Um, and majority of the times, the answer I get back is, oh, yeah, we have an ecosystem. We have suppliers, we have vendors, we yes. have our customers. And, and I say, okay, so how many of those relationships do you have in a way that you send them an RFI and you send them an RFP and then they respond and then you get a price and then you know you, you have some sort of a contract and you're done with it. Uh, they'll say, oh, well, that's part of the case. Probably they would say, yeah, that's the case. We have a great procurement department. We do that 100% of the time. And I'll say, okay, you know, then you don't have an ecosystem. By the way, I'm not suggesting that's wrong. Yes, yes. But that's not how ecosystems work. Ecosystems don't work by saying that, you know, here are the six things I need. Give me the price, and you know I'll get the best price or best service, and done yes. with it, right? By very definition, you're putting on the table. Here's what I'm going to give you. Here, what what are you going to give me? What, how could we share that together? And I'm going to create better value, right? That's not a typical vendor supplier relationship yes. you see in the broader in the broader economy. So that's the that, to go back to your question. That's what I get when I say. Have you mapped the ecosystem? Oh, yeah, we mapped the ecosystem. So tell me more about that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, we got this, and we got the RFPs and RFIs, et cetera, and we got a great procurement department, and we're doing great. I think that's where the fundamental shift, to going back to your earlier point, a shift in thinking has to happen. Yes, and I don't think enough companies do that. I think what they've mapped out is a map of relationships, which is not an ecosystem. Yeah, and what they've done is they've worked out the amount of money they spend with, with supplier X, Y, Z, and then they segment their customer groups into five customer groups and how much spend they get. But they're not thinking about how can you create a solution that increases the size of the pie so that we both benefit to a greater extent, as opposed to what yeah. most companies do now is they try to lower the price of a transaction whereby one person benefits. Yeah. Yes, and, and you know some sectors are notorious for this, right? Where I need two percent, three percent, four percent cost reduction every year. Um, by very definition of that, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that's wrong. I yes. mean, there's some great companies that are very successful at doing that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. You know, I'm not taking the point of view on is wrong or right. I'm just saying that is not 
what we're talking about when we talk about ecosystems. Yes, both parties need to benefit and the pie should increase in size as you find a ways to serve your consumers in better ways so you create more value. And, and I'll also add one more thing that is, that is both parties also have a very important role to play and they have to play that role very carefully and very thoughtfully and, and, and they have to have accountable for that role. And here's why, again, I'll give you, you know, a couple of levels of detail on that, right? If you're an anchor, if you're a platform owner, you have a huge responsibility on your shoulder to continually improve the platform. Going back to your Apple example, right? Apple has huge responsibility for to, to keep their, their developers attracted, to continually improve and get better features and you know better ways to, or faster ways to develop apps, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yes. Similarly, if you're a participant, right? You have a huge responsibility to make sure that you're contributing in a way that, you know, none of the nefarious ways in which you know the platform could get undermined or and in the ways in which that you know it's easier the apps are easier to get consumed and in their you know security wise and policy uh, privacy wise and etc so they're all these relationships are very intertwined and they're one's adding value on the other and and then the other is adding value on you know the, the other so that's kind of how it kind of builds on its own and creates a critical mass and then it builds on it yeah, I remember the early days when, when companies used to buy mainframes. So a lot of the discussions were for the Fortune 1000 company buying those mainframes from IBM and Oracle and so on. A lot of the discussions were how do we get IBM and Oracle to sell us at the lowest possible cost and then help us with maintenance. And then Amazon comes along with their system whereby they allowed companies to rent space on their servers. And as Amazon became better at managing its servers, it could pass on more savings to companies. So it was a win-win situation. As Amazon became better, the company renting space on their servers ended up getting a better service. And then it's an example like Apple's App Store, whereby they created a solution whereby everyone benefited from it. Is that another way to think about it? Yes, yes. And, and, and oftentimes, the ecosystems get started and they start with the right intention, but there is, there's oftentimes, or at least in a few examples where they do lose sight of what value are we adding to customers. Could you give me an example of that if you have a public example? So, you know, the, it's easy for me to do, um, you know, the historical examples. Uh, and, sure. and, and, and these examples, you know, are less um, controversial in nature in the sense that, you know, there is no conflict for me to talk about, right? Yes. Um, you know, back in the day when Nokia was around in cell phone market, right? Um, you had Symbian as the operating system. Yes. And at, at one point, I think there is a public domain information that suggests that they had massive amount of uh, users on that, you know, eco on the on Symbian ecosystem. They're developers. They're you know, all kinds of different pe people that are that are part of that, right? And um, you know, by and large, they met certain needs of the customers. You know, there were games on Symbian. There were small applications on Symbian. This is you know predates um, Apple ecosystem. And um, that ecosystem was probably the largest mobile ecosystem. Um, at that time, and it's yes. got really 
millions and millions of users on it and then develop, you know, and probably not as millions of developers, but there are, you know, decent amount of developers on it and, and tens of thousands of developers at least on it, right? And, you know, between 2007, eight, I should say, when App Store started, you know, uh, forming and 2011 and 12, those four or five year time frame, that ecosystem completely fell apart. Why did it the fall apart? So obviously with, with uh, Apple and Android and the emergence of those two ecosystems, um, they were so convenient and their customer value and the customer propositions are so clear, so simple and so easy to use. And comparatively speaking, that Symbian ecosystem were not able to you know, compete with that. And, and, you know, nobody wanted to use that. And there was no de developers had, you know, uh, started losing incentive and obviously users from a user usage standpoint, you know, it's a lot, a lot more attractive for Android and the iOS, eco iOS ecosystem um, because it's just so easy to use, so clean. So yes. everything is, you know, very, very, very compelling, right? That, that's, that's a good example of, um, there's a bit of a, you know, what's the next best alternative? Uh, point I'm just about well, to say but, that, yes. Yeah, and you know, they for Symbian ecosystem, there is a much better alternative uh, that came out in the, that that emerged in the market that completely undermined um, their proposition, and it went away. It, I mean, it is it is so uh, interesting how fast that ecosystem went away. Yes, I mean, you could say the same thing about BlackBerry, right? Yeah, you could. You could yeah, I would. I would. You know, I use Nokia or Symbian as an example, but you could, yeah, you could put, you could put um, BlackBerry in uh, in a similar bucket. And BlackBerry had really exponential meteoric rise. Yes. Um, in in the early days, I remember, I was, I, I felt, you know, as if I'm half naked, not having my BlackBerry in my hand. <laughs> I because still miss my BlackBerry, actually. <laughs> Exactly, but they rode, they rode, they developed a massive ecosystem around email and yes. all aspects. You know, there there are a couple of apps, and and um, and, and you know that that actually BlackBerry continued even you know a little further than um, the Nokia Symbian uh, ecosystem I talked about, and you know now it's Android and iOS. The, the problem with BlackBerry is that there wasn't enough apps. Yes, and again, this goes back to. Um, what customer proposition, and going back to my, my earlier point, right? It's not only what customer proposition are you delivering today in your ecosystem, but how are you evolving those propositions? How are you continually adding more and more and more value? Uh, and if you don't do that, somebody else would come in and add more value. I think, yes, you know, you have a great mode around you, but I, I think, you know, the fate of Symbian could come to any one of these places. Yes. Well, see, you've raised a very good point. It's not enough to have an ecosystem. It has to be an ecosystem that creates a value for the users. And continuously improve it, right? Yes, and, and, and that's a good point you, because people forget how bad the initial iPhone was. Yes. It was not good. I never bought the initial iPhone because I thought it didn't do what I wanted it to do, but they kept improving it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say you know, the initial iPhone was bad, but, but, uh, but you know, I, I see your broader point about there is a need for continuously improving 
by the way, not only need, it's a responsibility and you know, they, you're accountable as a platform owner to continuously improve it. If you don't, if you don't, you're really going to pay a pretty high price for that because yes. somebody else would come in and put better value. But by, by the way, that's the reason why on one hand, you can say these ecosystem oriented businesses are creating a tremendous amount of value and they're, they have great market caps, et cetera, et cetera. And you can also argue the flip side of the coin, they also have a huge responsibility and they have to continually you know, improve and continually show improvements and, 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 and continually add value. If they don't, and you know, somebody else would come and take that away from them. Yes, I like this discussion. So what we're, we're kind of heading towards is that strategy is a battle of ecosystems between companies, which really is a battle of alliances between companies. Because when we think about companies competing, we're really talking about different ecosystems competing, right. assuming you have an ecosystem. And those ecosystems are held together by a series of alliances that companies create between partners and so on. Is that a good way to think about it? That is a good way to think about it. And I would expand that by saying, I think we are probably in the you know, early innings of this ecosystem evolution, right? So obviously with the mobile uh, and then with cloud, um, yes, migration, you know, we're seeing some of those ecosystems formed, you know, in the book, we talk about how there is a potential for the whole economy could, um, to coalesce itself into maybe 12 or 10 or 12 different ecosystems. And I don't think we know, I think that's our, you know, best guess or speculation, right? By the way, there could be, you know, a couple of, or 10 or 12, macro ecosystems underneath them, there could be some micro ecosystems. Um, and a good example would be um, your, you have iOS as an ecosystem or, or Apple as an ecosystem, right? Yes. And you have iPhone and iPad, et cetera. And underneath that you have ride sharing app as you know, have, have their own micro ecosystem. Yes, know, right? with restaurants and so on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and 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 you have you know ride sharing app for Uber as an ecosystem. Lyft has a slightly different ecosystem, you could argue, and 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 you can say do the same thing for um, delivery, food delivery, goods delivery, etc. Right. So I think that whole um, the evolution is clearly happening in the consumer space. I think this evolution is going to or evolution is going to continue to happen in the other sectors of the economy. In, um, in 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 uh, home, uh, home could be around home could be one interesting ecosystem. The whole healthcare area could be a different ecosystem. So in the book, we talk a bit about um, you know what these potential evolutions could look like, and we get into a couple of examples about um, how that could those evolutions could potentially add more value for consumers, or whether you're a consumer in terms of the you know, as an individual or a, or a consumer in terms of, you know, as a corporation or, or, or a bunch of people in a corporation. And I, I think that's where thinking through that and we get very excited on how that evolution could, could, could go on for decades. And, and you would see 50 years from now, or, you know, you, you, you pick your, your own timeline, uh, a completely different economy uh, compared to what you see today. It also changes the way you've got to think about strategy and what's your competitive advantage and what's your core competency how do you maintain these shifting alliances? How do you keep a partner within your ecosystem and ensure they don't you know, break ranks and partner with another company and take a key capability you need? It changes the way we think about strategy because what we realize is a lot of the things we need to be successful 
are not always things we own and can directly control. Right. And I like that because it reduces the pressure on companies to do everything in-house. But on the other hand, it makes it very difficult to coordinate everything. And what I've seen is a lot of executives don't really think this way. They still have the old school style of thinking. I'm not saying it's wrong, but to focus too much on what their companies can do, own, control, and manage on their balance sheet versus understanding a large part of the value they create doesn't reside on their balance sheet. It's a different way of thinking about it. And hopefully more executives think in that way. Yes. And, and you know, you asked me the question early on, you know, how are tech companies uh, influencing this? I think some of the most successful tech companies also are extremely product focused. Yeah. But I've that product that. focus, the product focus typically doesn't come, you know, with internally product focused. I, I think the product focus, you know, some of these companies come from what can we do with this product that can wow our customers? I invite just taking that view, those companies inevitably get to this, okay, I can't do everything on my own. To wow my customer, I need X, Y, and Z. For me to get X, Y, and Z, I need to go do something else with the others. Yeah, so well, what you said is true. It's, there's a difference between being a product-focused company that's run by engineers and a product-focused company that's run by the needs of customers. And of yeah. course, you know, Apple is, is great products, but I do feel they build products that are useful for me as opposed to satisfying some internal quota for the engineering team. Oh, totally, totally. And I think, you know, more, some of the most successful companies have that common thread. It's an easy check to make, right? Whenever I buy something, electronics, the companies that put their customers first, the process of opening the box and pressing the start button is usually very easy. Companies that don't put their customers first, the process of opening that box and figuring out how to start the product is really a painful process. <laughs> but it's probably a very, uh, very practical way to test. You know, if the <laughs> company is uh, <laughs> consumer-oriented or customer-oriented or not, yeah. You know, uh, I've, I've, bought, yeah. I've bought seven Wi-Fi-enabled printers right. and I've never figured out how to connect my Wi-Fi to them, but to send yeah. them all back. And I'm just hoping yeah. that see, Apple makes a Wi-Fi enabled printer one of these days. See, that is that is a perfect example of how the tech companies that you deal with in your personal life are setting expectations for your work life. Perfect example. Yes. So you are not willing to live with those five or eight or six or seven, you know, Wi-Fi printers that you bought because your expectation is that you know, those, comp those, those products should be working with one or two button presses, not, you know, me figuring out by opening up my manual and then spending two and a half days figuring out how to connect them. No product should ever ship with a manual. That's my view. <laughs> if you have to put yeah. a manual and redesign your product. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, a, that's really a great example of uh, how, you know, the consumer-oriented companies with maniacal focus on consumers are setting expectations for, you know, for the enterprise use. It's, yeah, it's a very good example because we have this expectation, we've seen it, it works, we like it, and then we punish companies, punish in inverted commas, who don't meet that expectation. Right. Venkat, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think our readers and listeners will as well. Great. Yeah, I, I really, um, again, want to thank you for having me. And uh, likewise, uh, it was a very... Uh, exciting and exhilarating conversation. And again, thanks for giving me a chance to uh, spend some time with you. 
it was our pleasure and we hope to have you back again soon. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.